This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. To uh, our talk today with uh, teacher Grace Shearson. Grace is a teacher in the Suzuki Roshi lineage of Soto Zen. Many of you may know her. She is practiced in the Rinzai tradition and was encouraged to teach koans by Kaido Fukushima Roshi. And Grace is author of these books, many books, uh, Zen Women and co-author of Zen Bridge. She's head teacher of the Central Valley Zen Foundation and president of the Shigako Zen Institute and teaches meditation at Stanford University. Grace is also a clinical psychologist. 10 years ago, I had the opportunity to be part of the Shigako Institute's uh, priest ongoing training, a three-year program that taught many of us lay and ordained uh, people on different ways uh, and learning about roles and skillful ways in many kinds of relationships we encounter in Sangha. Today, the Shigaku Institute that Grace leads also offers Masters of Divinity for Buddhists, Buddhists who practicing Buddhists, uh, through a credential program by the state of California. The, I, many of you during these times where we, have, uh, re, we are reevaluating what we are doing with our lives, maybe some of you are encouraged to uh, put into practice your, your Buddhism. And one way to increase the skill level and opportunities is to take the courses or become a, uh, uh, get a master's in divinity and it will allow you increased opportunities and useful service uh, in our communities by having those kind of credentials uh, to serve as bodhisattvas um, through um, working with hospice, through chaplaincy in hospitals and prisons, and many other ways. So uh, Grace, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, I think you're gonna talk about your new book Naked in the Zendo, is that correct? That's true, I will talk about my new book and thank you uh, for the introduction and for mentioning Shogaku Zen Institute. I, I don't, uh, I often forget when I'm giving a talk to encourage people to sign up, it's online. And even though we have uh, costs for the classes, uh, we accept what people can afford. So the main thing is to keep us going and everything is online, and that's a good thing for right now. Um, I will, or someone can, send out a text to shogakuzen.org in the, um, in the uh, chat box so that people know where they can look into this. Right now, um, we're in the midst of a course on, um, on group dynamics and how people interact together. These are very important things for Zen people to know so they can see these dynamics in their own group. We will soon be offering a course by David Loy on the climate crisis, and I'm sure that will include our uh, increasing risk of pandemics. Um, 
So right now, I thought uh, I would be mostly talking about uh, the effects of the pandemic, the shutdown, and all of our difficulties. Um, but of course, everything changes. And in the last few days to one week, we've been uh, swept by the wind of institutionalized racism. So while I talked about fear at first in one of the chapters of my book, uh, once a pandemic started and I gave book talks, I talked about a chapter about fear. And that chapter is on page 31, if you have the book, um, the torn panties on the electric meter, which was a time that I encountered um, the sounds of an ongoing rape out, right outside my window. And I had to decide what to do about it. And since I was 20 at the time and finding my feet in Zen, I thought, well, this is what Zen means in this moment. I don't know how this is gonna work out, but I'm gonna go down and try to do something. So as a 20 year old in my own little apartment in Berkeley, I grabbed a uh, serrated knife from the kitchen drawer and walked downstairs. I put some clothes on first. Nobody else was responding to the screams. I was hoping that some of my neighbors would. So that kind of fear and the courage to face that fear, um, it turns out just the sound of my footsteps scared off the would-be rapist. And one has no way to know that when one faces frightening situations. So what happens to me usually when I face a frightening situation is um, I retreat into myself and kind of hide. I see this as a response um, to remain safe and silent. Um, I see some of my chickens do this too. When I approach them in the yard after I've allowed them out for a while and I want to put them back, and as I approach them, they'll just hunker down on the ground and get still so I can put my arms on them and they don't do anything. They've gone, they've gone still, they've um, gone numb. And I tend to do that. So I really appreciate being able to come out here and talk to you about how we're coping uh, with our changed lives and also with this problem that we have uh, as part of our society of institutionalized racism and the chapter that I've chosen to talk about right now um, is um, one called uh, Sand and Rice, I believe. I'll just turn to it and that's easier. Um, yes, Sand and Rice, and it's on page 131. And the reason I wanted to talk about this chapter today was um, it's about failure. And I think that's one of the uh, strong feelings that comes up now as we look at the things that have fallen apart in our lives. Uh, did we do enough? Um, I myself, when I um, worked as a psychologist in Berkeley, um, worked with underprivileged mostly black, but other folks in children. In my practice, I had groups. I worked at Children's Hospital in Oakland, and I saw um, many terrible things then. 
including taking on a case of a mother who had attempted suicide and shot herself and her um, maybe six or seven-year-old son in the head. Um, they both lived, but he came in for therapy. After that time, I also fostered, had a foster child of one of my patients who I couldn't stand to watch go down the drain in the system and brought him home. He was there for a number of months and he went from my home to a, a place in San Leandro because he was in a different county than Oakland. But all of this has turned out to not be enough. Any attention I've given has not been enough to solve this. And so the sense of failure is besides grief and trauma, which affects us all, and uncertainty, which we don't like very much. <laughs> this is the impermanence that uh, we face all the time in our lives. But there's uncertainty and failure in our society to be decent to all citizens. So this book that I wrote, Naked in the Zendo, um, I didn't pick the title, the publisher did. Of course, that's always for book sales. And the, the, the title comes from another chapter in which um, the Tenzo came out to give his bows before the meal which was the custom at Berkeley Zen Center. And actually, I was one of the servers at the time, serving the food. So I was standing next to him. And when he bowed on the third bow, his pants fell off. He was wearing underwear, but um, it was kind of a shock. And <laughs> I tried really hard not to react uh, you know, to cause further uproar as we were getting ready for our Oreoki meal. But um, Sojin Mel Weitzman Roshi, the teacher, um, began to laugh. And, you know, laughter, especially during Sashin, is so contagious. So, of course, I started laughing and I'm holding a bowl with both hands as I'm starting to serve people. Some people saw this, the pants fall off, and some people did not. But um, I'm laughing so hard and all kinds of liquids are running down my face and I'm trying to serve, of course, everyone I, I'm serving, whether they saw or not, is laughing because it's all so absurd. But uh, the cook himself left the Zendo right away. And then I felt a little guilty. Again, a failure. Um, I hadn't maybe taken care of him as I should have. So when I went to put the pots back to, in the kitchen, I asked him what had happened, and he said, well, um, my pants were a little loose, you know, drawstring, uh, sweatpants, so I took a big breath to fill, make my belly fill out the pants, but then when I bowed and I exhaled, I let that air out, and that's how the pants fell off. So I asked him how he was feeling, and he said, you know, really, what I should have done is um, go up to Sojin Roshi and say, Master, I have been enlightened. And I think that's exactly right, you know, in terms of our failures. The one we're in the midst of right now is opening our eyes and enlightening us. 
but recognizing our mistakes and being able to live with them is the most important thing we can do with our practice. Generally, I have seen people don't grow and have enlightened experiences so much from their joy. It's more about what they have to cope with. So I wanted to talk about one of the most difficult times in my life before this moment. And of course, I've had mostly a privileged and enlightened life. But the book goes from, this book goes from uh, incidents that occurred from the time I was a child to the time, present day almost. Um, it was published in November of last year. And it talks about my moments of awareness and how I find awareness in these moments. So this is a story, um, Sand and Rice, um, that was in the middle of my life. I hope it's the middle. I hope it's not toward the end. Um, my life of parenting, which I think has the most lessons for people who've gone through it. And so on one, page 131, creating family life is like cooking an original meal made of yourself. All your personal ingredients, combined with those of your child. Your personal strengths and weaknesses, genetic likeness, the way you were raised, all these ingredients are in the gumbo. The cooking pots are the loving relationship. In addition to the ingredients you started with, your influence in your child's personhood begin to complete the dish. And the whole cuisine is spiced with discipline, humor, and your principles. Sometimes the dish that emerges stuns the cook. Sometimes it is neither what you expected nor how you wished it to turn out. Other times your child emerges, declares his or her own wisdom beyond your influence, and the dish you cook blows you away. In Zen, the teacher as spiritual parent tests how the student's understanding is ripening. In some Zen stories, the teacher samples and seasons the student's understanding only to discover that the student has surpassed the teacher. Like every child, every Zen student ripens to become his or her own unique creation. One old teacher, Tozan, walking through the busy monastery kitchen to check his student Seppo, the cook, asked a puzzling question. When you are washing the rice, do you wash the sand and pick out the rice? Or do you wash the rice and pick out the sand? The student answered, I wash and throw away both the sand and the rice together. I suspect that might be the feeling of some of the people who are protesting right now. I'd like to throw everything out. Tozan asked, then what on earth do the residents here have to eat? What will be left? What will be left after all this demonstration? In response, Seppo turned over the rice bucket, throwing away all the ingredients. To waste food in a Zen kitchen is more than a mistake. It is a serious violation. But Tozan calmly observed, the day will come when you will practice under another master. Tozan was not emotional or punitive, but he was calmly observing that this student's behavior and understanding were a handful, maybe not amenable 
to Tozan's own style. This was a student who went beyond Tozan's verbal questioning, putting his whole heart into his answer. Seppo was unafraid of the consequences of turning over the bucket. A little bit like what's going on right now across the United States and elsewhere in the world with protests. I just need to do this. Seppo's, Seppo was unafraid of uh, turning over the bucket and throwing away the food. His understanding and temperament took him beyond words. Tozan, a mature teacher, understood the power of Seppo's answer, but he was not sure he was the right teacher to meet Seppo's force. Like the old master checking his student in the kitchen, many conversations between parent and child explore just what is sand, what is rice, and how the child might distinguish which behaviors to keep and which to throw away. A parent may think they can easily identify what is of value, distinguishing between rice and sand, and offer clear instructions to the child on how to separate the two. But we often distinguish rice from sand through the clouded lens of our own defenses developed in response to personal pain. We try, perhaps unconsciously, to be right, to protect our point of view. And this is what's so important in these times. How do we remain open when things are so painful? We may justify or rationalize according to our own values, but the child may have a different view Sometimes it is our child who helps us see through our limitations in a dramatic act of kicking over the bucket of our ideas. In one such situation, it was my 14-year-old son, Max, who threw over the bucket. It was a very painful conversation. His father and I had decided to separate. Of course, in such a conversation, adults may try to talk about the very good reasons Max knew the sand quite well. Our arguments and unhappiness, he'd witnessed more than enough of that. The rice we offered was the planned separation, a newly constructed living arrangement and a pledge to love and support him in the new configuration. So this is a time in my life uh, that it's hard for me even to talk about because it was so painful to fail in this way and to recognize that my own failures in the relationship had resulted in so much pain for others. In one fell swoop, Max threw over the bucket, its contents, the conversation, and our rationalizations. After listening carefully and quietly to our decision, Max said calmly, no matter what you say or do, I have lost my family. And I will never, ever get my family back. His father and I hung our heads in silent shame. There was no arguing with his no-nonsense no expression of loss, the failure of both parents. We were humbled. This was Max's loss, <clears throat> and his strength and wisdom came forth to bear his suffering. Allowing his wisdom and suffering to stand unanswered was our apparently act of courage, no arguing, no defensiveness, our silence validated his experience. 35 years later, I weep recalling his words and, my, and the pain he refused to hide. 
In fact, when my husband and I reconciled after our separation, we got another comeuppance from Max. After a year's separation, Peter and I found out that our own unhappiness was just that. And our love and married life were worth more effort. When we sat down with 15-year-old Max to tell him we were getting back together, he had this to say. When I worried about your fighting, you told me you wouldn't divorce. I accepted that. When you told me that you were divorcing, I accepted that. Now you are telling me that you are getting back together. How will I ever trust you again? In that moment, I heard the sand, rice, and bucket rolling across the floor. In such a moment, when your child points out your failures and inadequacy, what will you do? In that moment, can you wait with the pain without defensive maneuvering? Where will you find the space, the open mind within which you can wait with your pain as you take in your child's experience? Finding the space to let go of your reactivity for the sake of your child's experience takes a practice of self-reflection. And that's where we are now. It's hard to think of ways to fix this mess that we're in, but we do need to take it in. And that's very difficult, especially when we're going through our own hardships and losses during this pandemic. But how can we actually offer something of value? And that's where our practice comes in. How do we stop and look at ourselves? When I was studying in Japan with Keito Fukushima Roshi in Kyoto, someone asked him in English, I brought some students over to meet him, what is the most important thing? And he said, watching your mind. So we watch our mind during these difficult times. And as I said earlier, I want to go into hiding. Part of that is explained earlier in the book by my own um, experience of physical abuse um, by my mother and father and the fear that that brings out. In this situation that we're in, what is our tendency and how can we meet it to be of use? One must build a relationship to this space, to this space of recognizing pain and failure. One has to have confidence in this space as a place to heal. One needs a relationship to expanded awareness to begin to accept such a painful view. The act of throwing over the bucket means that one cannot rely on and be guided by another's ideas and concept held within any situation. You have to find your own way. Sometimes the ideas can be refined, but sometimes the whole structure must be scrapped to find fresh growth. So again, we're looking at the situation that's unfolding before our eyes and we see an attempt to scrap the whole situation, the whole structure to find fresh growth. Fortunately for me, uh, my son survived his traumas. In fact, we share a house uh, with our granny apartment in it. And uh, Max and his wife uh, are upstairs and my three grandchildren who are two home from college and, and one from high school 
are up there too. So the bucket was thrown over and all the contents scattered and some new possibilities of a healthy life arose. I don't know how the situation will turn out. And as we say in Soto Zen, not knowing is most intimate. One of the things um, that occurred to me as I was preparing for this talk was um, Ado Carney's uh, efforts, and I believe she did practice with Coleman, didn't she, Doug, Ado? Yes, I think so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so she's uh, close to this lineage. Anyway, Ado noticed, uh, just the way I go into my hidey hole, many women, uh, then teachers, didn't put themselves out there as much as they could. And so she um, began a process through um, Temple Ground Press of bringing women teachers together to give talks. And so there were several books that came out, and you may have seen them, uh, Zen Teachings uh, in Challenging Times, The Eightfold Path, and these are all books by women teachers. And the first one, I believe, was Receiving the Marrow, um, Teachings on uh, Dogen. So um, I was th thinking about teachings for challenging times, and I did write a chapter for this book, which I'm going to talk about a little bit, since we're all being blown away right now by all the circumstances in our world. And the chapter I wrote was about the eight winds, which was something I used to teach about uh, to my groups. And right now I have a Stanford University women's group that I teach, but um, of course students aren't on campus, so I don't do much there. The eight winds are pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and shame. So I would say right now, with this pandemic and watching these um, difficult protests and destruction uh, in our country, are between gain and loss and praise and blame. And what, uh, what do we do in the face of the wind where we're trying to protect ourselves from loss in uncertainty? And what do we do when we want to be right and not accept the blame for the situations we're in? So in this chapter, I also talk about eight practices um, that Dogen listed for uh, awakening. Besides stability and meditation and realizing impermanence, seeing that our desires increase suffering, understanding that all humans have cravings, not looking outside ourselves for affirmation, <clears throat> finding time for secluded contemplation, making sincere effort, and finally, where we are now, cultivating wisdom, seeing the world as always, on fire. We tend to want to dramatize any situation we're in, but understanding humans and their cravings and how we lean into suffering 
is a very important understanding that wherever we are, uh, we need to accept difficult circumstances as an eternal truth. We wish the world were more loving and peaceful, but it has never been so. As we cultivate that within ourselves, this matters. There are peaceful moments, but human existence is impermanent. Old age may mean pain, loss, financial stress, and disappointment in ourselves or others. So if we have cravings that things be otherwise, which I call in uh, my book, uh, Naked in the Zendo, wishing it to be otherwise is a source of much of our suffering. And I call that Whitbo, wishing it to be otherwise. I have a chapter on that too. So if we are wishing it to be otherwise, we add to our suffering. We may have hoped that the inequities and injustice would be solved by our lifetime of efforts. I certainly hope so with the efforts that I made. During the 60s, I was out there demonstrating. I was in Berkeley. And then my husband and I immigrated to Canada during the Vietnam War. And how shocked were we when we came back and we had two sons. And the Iraq War started and we realized we hadn't fixed it. And our own sons were at the time 18 and 20 and was very frightening for us to see, no, we didn't fix it. But we made efforts. And as we look around, we realize that the social justice for which we have worked has not been achieved as we'd hoped. As we face these challenges of injustice and cruelty, it is helpful to recognize that we must combine our personal struggle and effort with the recognition that the world is always on fire with turmoil. Our efforts matter, our collective efforts matter. The results of our efforts in a world on fire can be directional and long-term, perhaps even beyond this lifetime. A demand that things improve right now before our eyes is unrealistic. Our efforts matter though, and this is kind of how there's a balance and a struggle between feeling discouraged by the current situation and finding ways to make effort. Um, I felt like I needed to do something. And so one besides gardening, that's one of the ways I restore myself during these difficult times. But also, uh, I did training online as contact tracer. I'm waiting for the opportunity, but it hasn't happened yet. We all need to keep making efforts to help things. The results of our efforts in a world on fire can be directional and long-term perhaps even beyond this lifetime. A demand that things improve right now before our eyes is unrealistic. Demanding that our efforts result in visible accomplishment adds to our disappointment, despair, and suffering. Experience the human, experiencing the human world as it is, rather than how we demand it to be, helps us to continue our efforts with greater equanimity and less suffering. So I wanted to end there 
with uh, the recognition that the world is on fire and has been, as Buddha has stated from the very beginning, and ask you to um, raise your hand. I think some of you know how to do that on Zoom, and, and Doug can uh, let you talk about how this has been for you and what, what your own struggles have been like. Because I think one of the beauties of meeting as a group <clears throat> is that we share group wisdom. And we are not just relying on ourselves and our own mind, but the group mind, the collective mind, the wisdom that permeates everyone. So thank you, and I'm ready for questions. All right, any questions? Questions and thoughts about how you're coping right now. I'd like to hear that too. We all need help. Uh, Grace, just an antidote. Uh, earlier this week, uh, I was in communication with Ben Connolly, who led a Yogacara Sashin here um, in early March. And uh, I, I just wanted to reconfer with him about some stuff here. But it was also the day that George Floyd uh, died in Minneapolis. And uh, I communicated with him a little bit and, and uh, just just the, the sadness uh, of, of what's unfolding in Minneapolis. And he said that whole thing happened with him within a mile of his place. And um, I think some of us know, know Ben, many of us do. Uh, he's also a socially active priest. And uh, I, I just um, uh, really respect what he does and uh, hope he can do some good work there in Minneapolis, but it's happening all over the place. So uh, it's important work for all of us to help somehow. Yeah, the somehow is, uh, is the question. Somehow, uh, how do we come together and help uh, this uh, fire that we're in? Yes, um, thanks, Doug. Uh, so, you know, uh, this morning, in, in during the uh, uh, first sitting, uh, like uh, spontaneously, the first few lines of the Heart Sutra came to me. Avalokiteshvara um, Bodhisattva, while practicing deeply the Prajnaparamita, clearly saw that all five conditions are empty, and thus was relieved from all suffering and fear, the translation that I know, or suffering and distress. Um, then, uh, first, I, I saw that as um, when you, when you, when you mm, just, you know, at a very basic level, right, I, uh, I, I haven't seen the truth of emptiness or anything like that, but at a very basic level, when you when you feel the connection with other beings, like there's a lot of uh, healing in that. And then the image of this man, I haven't I haven't had the heart to watch this police officer who sat on George Floyd and snuffed out his life. I I haven't watched it, but I heard enough about it to know what happened. And uh, then the image that 
came to me was like how much suffering this police officer must have inside him. The depth of the suffering that he caused George Floyd is matched by the depth of his own suffering and alienation with himself. Because when you touch a person, when you're in contact with a person, as you're sniffing out their life, you feel their breathing go out. And it's Christ, the Christ for help. So be cut off from your feelings to that extent and have that much hatred, how much pain this man must be in to do something like this. And uh, then I, then I, my, uh, my anger towards him went away because I, I see that like the only way to heal the situation is to heal everyone's suffering. I, I don't I don't think it's possible, like the, the teacher said, I, I think the world has always been on fire, but uh, even in Buddha's own life, his country got invaded, like he couldn't prevent, prevent that. Uh, but um, I had, I had this way too much thinking during Zazen, but this came to me that one possibility would be if like the family of this black man that got murdered murdered yeah oh. if some vast soul like that can speak up like martin luther king jr and have some forgiveness for this act that will kind of, in my mind, heart, imagination, that would really heal a lot of people from both sides. Because like shaming people just brings anger, it goes into hiding and has other reactions. You know, as any kid who's been shamed knows, <laughs> you know, it doesn't work. So anyway, that that's just, you know. Yes. I don't have any answer. I just... Uh... Yeah, you're thinking about how is it... Uh, so, something has can be done about the vast suffering of all beings. And yes, um, to be so disconnected from another human being to harm them is something that's hard to grasp. I have one of those chapters in my book about the time my mother gave me a black eye. And I, I said to her, I know you didn't mean to hurt me. As I was crying after the event, I was a teenager. And she said, yes, I did. And I thought at the time I was so puzzled by this because I couldn't imagine wanting to hurt someone in that way. And yet I recognized that her honesty was a very important part of my own development. Had she blown it off and denied it, it would have been a different experience for me. So how each of us faces ourselves with honesty 
is where we need to start regarding the suffering. Also, you remind me um, of Thich Nhat Hanh's poem, uh, Call Me By My True Names. I am the child in, this is part way through, I'm the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms dealer selling deadly weapons in Uganda. And I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. But I'm also the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. So how we identify to the extent we can without driving ourselves into a deep depression, how we can identify with the suffering of everyone in this moment is very important. That's our practice, actually. Not to be self-centered, but to actually relate to and watch how our mind relates to the overwhelming suffering that's going on right now. And start from there. Hogan. Um, thanks for that. Um, I am, I like that last thought a lot about to keep track of how my mind is relating to what I'm seeing and uh, experiencing. And um, honesty is very important there too, I, I think, to, for me to try to keep track of how my mind actually is responding and also untangle uh, some deep habits of me always having these ideals about how I should be responding to various attempts at empathy or uh, attempts at understanding. Um, can can you uh, can you give me some guidance about uh, in your experience? You, you maybe you don't run into this problem, but maybe you do. But um, so I'll just ask for advice for myself. Uh, sometimes there is confusion in my mind about how I should be empathizing with an actor that I'm seeing in a, a story or in, in the story of my life and how I'm actually doing it. Um, so how to be truly honest and how to know what to do with um, some very um, inconvenient findings uh, that, I, that I find about my own reactions and my own prejudices and uh, judgments, when is it correct to volunteer them to the moment? When is it correct to notice them and spend time with my uh, therapist talking about them in a more safe environment? I know it's a very big topic, but... Right. Uh, yeah. And there isn't one size fits all for these situations. So the first thing that you mentioned, um, you know, being with your feelings and being honest is where you start. And it's very important um, to recognize that most of these difficult encounters are based on our own uh, defensive structure that emerged from the time we were like two years old, where we learned how to cope. Mm -hmm with difficulties. So 
we need to understand when, and this is why watching your mind is so important, because these become familiar, these patterns, like my own uh, wanting to hide, uh, like my chickens and go limp when someone is coming for me as a way of not making it worse. Because I had a brother and sister, and my, both of them were beaten more than I was because I knew how to shut up most of the time. I learned how not to later. That's another story. But my brother, I watched my brother um, being strangled to unconsciousness by my father. And I know I watched it because he's told me about the surrounding circumstances. But for those moments when it actually happened, I blocked out. And so the important thing is in this healing, which is a trauma of dissociation and repetition of unwholesome patterns, mm -hmm. how do we actually get in touch in the moment, which is the most important thing in the moment to actually experience rather than do a spiritual bypass of what you're experiencing and what you and think what you should be experiencing how do you stay with what you're experiencing and from there trust your process so this is what in part our practice is about developing enough stability in our practice so that we can trust it with our life and so while there isn't a, an answer for each situation, the first step is to become aware. Because without becoming aware, we couldn't possibly know what to do. So start there. Is that enough? Not quite. Thank you. It's, one, it's a lot. It's wonderful. And um, my follow-up is um, I start with being aware. And um, I think it's crucial for me to also figure out which parts of my true, honest response are simply habitual and which are um, more connected to the reality of the actual moment. And I'm wondering if uh, you have anything specific about uh, things to notice about the, the smell or the flavor of um, something I might notice in my mind that would be an indication that it's habitual response, a uh, conditioned response that um, I might need to go to some real effort to say to say no, not this time. We're not going to. We're going to try something different this time. No matter no matter what um, my habitual mind is telling me. Are, are you getting the idea here? Of, of yes, I got it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you're looking for some cues. Yeah, cute. Uh, that tell you, when am I in the grips of my neurosis, of my uh, repetitive and habitual response to previous trauma that has triggered a whole uh, neurological pattern? Mm -hmm. How do I note that? Mm -hmm. And that's where um, I say you have to start with awareness because there are body cues. Sometimes for me, if I'm going down a path and, and denying What's happening, I'll start shaking with cold. Mm. Other times my hands will get cold. For everyone, there are generally bodily sensations. Um, sometimes warmth in the face, uh, sometimes a rapid heartbeat, sometimes your breath is up high in your chest. What do you notice when you slow down and become aware about 
the response. Now, this will take some time and some practice because usually when we're in the grips of one of these habitual responses, we are in the grips of it. And it's maybe later, and that's what the contemplation phase is. Uh, when Dogen says you need time for contemplation, quiet contemplation, you have to go, go revisit bring up that situation in your mind, maybe not in the moment that you're in it, but later, and say, what triggered? What happened? What does it feel like in my body? So look for the bodily cues, for one thing. But always when you're stirred up, every single time you're stirred up, here's a, here's a routine answer, <laughs> one size fits all. If you're stirred up, not a good time to act. Thank you. One more question. Somebody's got a hand up there. It looks like Deborah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you, Grace. Um, it, it's a moment of, of marvel and gratitude right now. Uh, as I sit through Zoom in Santa Barbara, um, I see Andy, who was my first teacher in Modesto about 10 years ago, who, of course, led me to you. Um, and I attended Sashin at uh, Empty Nest. And then I returned to San Diego, uh, where I had lived for many years. Big upheaval there. And I came to you right after that. Actually, uh, my husband died and, and everything fell apart. And you told me, you don't get to control the time of your grief. And I had to sit with that a lot because I wanted away from it. And it was suffering like I hadn't known before. And that led me to Santa Barbara, eventually, Carpinteria, where I met Bob, who I also see there in the Zendo or, or in the Zoom Zendo. I just, I haven't seen Bob now for three months. He's sitting there. And I also see in the Zendo Emmy, who I worked with at La Casa de Maria here in Santa Barbara. And I went to Santa Cruz last year to study, which is where I discovered Jokoji. So it's like, you know, zigzag zen in a different use of the word. Through Zoom, I have this amazing family of practitioners. And when I think of what was said about in terms of compassion, also as part of the San Francisco Zen Center, I'm, I'm in a correspondence course with inmates and a lesson that the inmate has given me several times is that hurt people hurt people. And I have to keep looking at that when my, my reactions come up. And so I think that that, that statement about compassion, about how we all have suffering, and the, the kindness to our suffering, the kindness to other human suffering. And then I suppose putting it, you know, back into kind of this umbrella of perhaps we don't get to control the time. We don't know how it's going to unfold. Um, but certainly when you told me I had to lean into it, it's the hardest lesson. It's the hardest. But thank you so much for all that you do, all of your teaching. Thank you. Uh, 
Um, yes, uh, it's hard. Um, and we could only take it in. We can't force ourselves to take it in faster than we can. We can only do what we can do. So that's the important lesson right now. How do we stay aware in the midst of so much pain? We can't uh, take in more pain than our bodies and minds will tolerate. A lot of what was going on in the beginning of this uh, pandemic was uh, people's dissociation from the trauma and the grief because your mind and your body are protecting you. And you're, I know I couldn't think for very long. I would get exhausted during the day. I could barely do various tasks in the beginning. After that, I found ways to relate through going outside and gardening and doing some flower arranging and then getting some chickens, <laughs> which forces me outside to take care of somebody. And we need to understand that we are ourselves, the Buddha body. And so we can only help if we take care of ourselves and allow in what we can allow in. We can't make the suffering go away, but our body and mind knows it has intrinsic wisdom as to the pace through which we can find our way to be present and process our suffering because there's no way that that suffering or especially the grief of losing a loved one will go away we just have to learn how to befriend it and be with it as people have said about this pandemic it's not going away the virus isn't going anywhere we're gonna have to learn how to live with it and that takes some time to even allow that to penetrate and it's the same with our institutional racism. We will need to do some things. One thing we'll be voting, and there will be other things that we can do. But we can't make it go away, and um, we need to respect our own limits to process it and our pace. Yeah, Bob and Santa Barbara, good to see you. What's your... Unmute you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. I just have a, a slight comment on seeing the world is always on fire. I think the key word for me there is always. And this statement is just blown my mind today because last weekend my wife and I did a eight and a half hour retreat with Pema Chodron on Shantideva's The Bodhisattva Path. And this was recorded in 2006. And the people were uh, in grief over what the president was doing and the Iraq war and all this terrible stuff was going on. And I wanted to go back in time and tell them, people, you, you don't have a clue what's going, what really trouble is. So uh, that's my comment. Yeah. yeah. And even though it's always on fire, uh, we're like the little sparrows flying over the fire. You know that uh, there's a, a little t uh, folk tale about this. The sparrow takes a mouthful of water and flies over the fire and drops the water. And that's all we do. Oh, uh, he does that or she does that. Not until the fire is out, but until 
she's finished. She's dead from uh, her life is over, but the whole life is dedicated to the mouthful of water for the fire because we can't be discouraged by the fact that it's always on fire, but we need to take that as a basic reality. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.